Father, it was your servant Isaiah who said your word is like the rain and the snow. And even as we gather here tonight and we hear the rain just pounding on the roof above us, we pray that your word would seep into us like the rain tonight. Uh, That you would nurture faith in us. Lord, that your word would be drink for thirsty spirits and would be a a cleansing for, for just the gunk that gets on us as we walk through the week. Pray, Father, you would wash us with your word tonight and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would be encouraged in these last days. We know, Father, the days are evil. And so we just pray that we might be built up and and re-energized as lights in this world. We pray the truth of Jesus Christ would get into us deep tonight. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah the prophet. You know, Bible prophecy is very simply history written in advance. Not what might happen, but what will happen because God has already seen it happen, being outside of time. Bible prophecy is history written in advance. And because we have such amazing fulfillment of Bible prophecy in the past... I'm absolutely convinced that every nuance of every word of every prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled absolutely and perfectly. And that's part of what makes studying the Bible so impressive and studying Bible prophecy so exciting. And I did say this a few weeks back that some people say, well, you spend a lot of time in Bible prophecy. Well, if you're in the Bible, you're going to spend a lot of time in Bible prophecy. You cannot study the Word of God without studying the prophecies of God because it covers a third of the Holy Scriptures. You're bound to run into it one out of three times. And when we're in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, we're going to run into it a lot. In fact, every single week. There's something else that um, we've talked about regarding Bible prophecy that continues to play out before us in our study, and and it's very impressive to me. It's what I would call the duality of prophecy. The duality of prophecy. Let me give it to you in the words of H.A. Ironside. He said, Many of the conditions through which Israel and the Gentile nations have already passed depict circumstances that will be faced in the future. Did you get that? Let me read it again. Many of the conditions through which Israel and the Gentile nations have already passed depict circumstances that will be faced in the future. Some of those conditions prefigure the days of the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. What's he saying? The things Israel has gone through before are simply a picture or a type of what will be gone through in the future. Things that have happened in the nations that God prophesied and said would happen. And then we see it fulfilled, those prophecies fulfilled. There's a duality there. There's a first fulfillment, but there will be a later greater fulfillment as well. How do you know this? You're going to see it very clearly tonight. Plain and clear, some prophecies spoken by Isaiah fulfilled within a hundred years of Isaiah speaking the words. And then they will be fulfilled again. And I'll show you why I believe that and, and how we can know that as we go forward. Now, I understand the prophecies of Jesus' second coming, someone might say. And... They might say, I even understand the loving requirement of God giving fair warnings to the future judgment and tribulation that's coming. But why? Why does God include such specific prophecies of the tribulation in Scripture now? Why is it there of of these things that are going to happen in the time of wrath? Especially for us. Because we're not going to be here. So why worry about it? Why even study it, and why does God put it here? Well, we're going to see why tonight. Let's get into it. Chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those who enact evil statutes, and to those who constantly record unjust decisions, so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights, so that widows may be their spoil, and that they may plunder the orphans. Now what will you do in the day of punishment, and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? 
And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. And right there, verses 3 and 4, speak not only of warning that was imminent and impending and immediate, but it speaks of a warning of days to come. We can read this exact verse today and speak this out on every street corner in America or really throughout the entire world. What will you do in the day of punishment and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for your help? It's a question that we can ask anybody in the world. If you're standing outside of Christ, where's your hope? Who are you going to turn to? The Republican candidates? Obama? You know, who are you going to turn to? Your, your IRA? Your stocks and your bonds? Where are you going to turn in the day when it all comes down? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. Now, that is a warning to the people then, but it's very much a warning of days to come. And we see in the latter half of verse 4, in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. We talked about that on New Year's Day. This is the fourth stanza of a fourth stanza warning to Israel. God is serving notice of the immediate doom that will be faced by the people of Israel. And it's a very clear warning and we saw it fulfilled as this doom fell upon Israel in the place or in the... In the nation of Assyria. Assyria coming down and bringing, lowering the boom on Israel, just as God said was going to happen through Isaiah. But now, and I started with that because that's kind of background, because the rest of chapter 10, the Lord is going to fix His sights on Assyria. He's going to turn His gaze away from Israel. He turns his sights on what we would call the instrument of his indignation. He has strong words, but not anymore for the receivers of the punishment. Now he has strong words for the paddle. Those of you parents who have ever used a paddle in spanking your children, have you ever gotten angry with the paddle? That seems like an odd thing to do. Or if you have spanked with the open hand, have you ever really given your hand a good talking to? You know, I sent you to do a job and you really went overboard. It was just way too much. So you're grounded, mister. (laughs) It's strange. It's an odd thought. But that's what God does with Assyria. Why would He do that? Watch and learn. He is going to punish the paddle. The rest of chapter 10 can be divided into three parts. We're going to break it up tonight. The first part is what I would call the pomp of Assyria. The pomp of Assyria, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. The paddle for the discipline of God's children is now in trouble themselves. Now, before we go any further, the Bible gives background to this people. The people of Assyria, they descended from Noah's son Shem by his son, a man by the name of Ashur. Now you can figure all that out if you go to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 is called the Table of Nations because starting with Noah and then going to Ham, Shem, and Japheth, it goes in and breaks out and we can see where every nation in the world came from right there. It's a fascinating study. And Ashur is the father of the Assyrians. He's the first one. He's kind of the founder of that people. Genesis chapter 10 verse 22 says the sons of Shem were Elam, Ashur, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram who was father then of the Aramaeans. And you can track those things. So the Assyrians are not Hamitic, as in coming from the line of Ham, that would be the Babylonians. They were Hamitic people. But the Assyrians are from the line of Shem, which is interesting, so are the Jewish people. They're all Semitic. And the Assyrians were a Semitic people just like Israel was. The pagan god of the Assyrians was a god by the name of Assur. A-S-S-U-R. Similar to Ashur, the founding father there of the Assyrians. So it's probably drawing back there. The three quick things to note about the character we know historically about the Assyrians. This is background for understanding this chapter. Number one, the Assyrians were remarkably intelligent. This was a very, very intelligent people. Archaeological studies have shown this. That they were known for amazing architecture. They were the ones who originated the ziggurat form of temple building. 
amazing architecture in archaeological finds and digs and in the region they have seen things that are just incredible. Highly sophisticated social strata. That is, their society and how things were broken out and broken down. Very sophisticated, again, by archaeological studies. And they were highly advanced in their military organization. In fact, it was the Assyrians who were the first ones to utilize psychological warfare. So they were remarkably intelligent, but intelligence doesn't necessarily translate to wisdom. Perhaps you know that. Some of the smartest people in the world are absolutely unwise. It's not just head knowledge that makes you a wise person, and they were not wise. They, they were not wise in their thirst for power. They were not wise in how they handled conquered nations. If you want to compare them to Rome, Rome actually showed some wisdom. Because when Rome conquered a nation, they tried to envelop that nation and bring them in to the Pax Romana, you know, the peace of Rome. They tried to give them some sense, allowed them to keep some of their own uh, personality and character traits and, and characteristics as a nation. Rome would do that. Not Assyria. Assyria just wanted them wiped out and stripped them of everything, and what they ended up with was throngs of bitter, angry people. And that would eventually undo Assyria. People would turn on Assyria and be angry with their captors. The Assyrians, number two, not only were they remarkably intelligent, they were ruthlessly violent. A ruthlessly violent people. When Assyria conquered a nation, this was typical uh, standard for them. Their king would sit on a throne in the capital city of the conquered nation, and the people, the conquered people, would be marched in front of him. And they would be debased and demeaned and often killed right there in front of him. Some were flayed alive in his presence. Others were blinded, had their eyes put out by the soldiers. Still others had their heads impaled on sharp sticks and posts. And they would watch this happen. Those who were allowed to live were led into captivity, some of you Bible students know, by fish hooks shoved through their noses and dragging them across the hot deserts. Ruthless people. When they conquered, they would stack up the skulls of the dead in the entrance to the city that they had conquered. And so they were very violent. And those conquered again by Assyria would bear a seething bitterness toward their captors and it would ultimately come back around on them. And this Assyria was the instrument of God's indignation with Israel. And his message to Assyria then was not good job. Well done. Way to go. Thanks for taking care of the business that I sent you out for. No, his message was a message of woe. And why is that? Number three, remarkably intelligent, ruthlessly violent, and they were rebelliously arrogant. An incredibly arrogant people. And we need to understand that because God uses them to accomplish His will. But their motives were far from godly. Their motives were not to please the Lord. They rejected the Lord. They did not believe in the Lord. And so their whole goal was just to conquer and destroy. It was about power. And the Lord had a different agenda. Now I point that out because even if a nation fulfills God's judgment against another nation, in this case Assyria against Israel and later Babylon against Judah, the attacking nation is still culpable for their motives and even for their behavior. Just because God calls on a nation to a certain task, that nation is still responsible for how they handle themselves and that task. And God explains this clearly in the opening chapters of Romans. Keep your finger there and turn over to Romans chapter 2 for a moment. Romans chapter 2. Verse 11. Paul writes, For there is no partiality with God. You know, if someone ever asks you, or says to you, I think Christianity is unfair because you guys think you're the only ones who are saved. You just say, well, there's, there's no partiality with God. Everyone has the exact same opportunity. By the way, Romans chapter 2, verse 11, blows away the idea of absolute predestination. Because if some are predestined to go to heaven and some are predestined to go to hell, there is partiality with God. But Paul says there's not. There is no partiality with God. Everybody's in the same boat. Everybody's equal before the Father. He goes on and says, All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. 
And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. It is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. Now I know we're in Pauline thinking here, so, so stay with me. He says, "...in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus." What is he saying? Where there is no understanding of the written law of Moses, people are not off the hook because we have the law written on the conscience. There's the law of Moses, there's the law of conscience. And that's what Paul is addressing. He's saying, the Jewish people, you're under law. You know the law. You will be judged by the law. It is the law of Moses that you are judged by. And of course, we know it's that law that brings us to grace because we realize that perfect law is not keepable by man. But if you're not under that law, what about everybody else? The law of conscience. That God has hardwired into every single person on the face of the earth the conscience. And the conscience gives us indication of right and wrong. I've said this before. I love C.S. Lewis' statement about that. When he was an atheist, which he was at one time in his life, C.S. Lewis said, I had one particular problem. I was an atheist because I thought of the universe as unjust. But then I realized, how did I get the idea of just or unjust? Where did that come from? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of, of a straight line. And Lewis's whole argument was, if I have this sense of right and wrong, of just and unjust, if I've got this conscience, that's got to come from somewhere. And so he questioned his way right into faith and became one of the greatest theologians of the last century. Well, that's interesting. That means that we all have conscience before God. We all know the right and the wrong. Now that conscience can get seared over time. And you can get to the point, a human being can get to the point where they're just not discerning right or wrong at all. But we all have that, and Paul talks about that. It's hardwired into man, the law of conscience. Therefore, thinking back to Assyria and Babylon later, they had the law of conscience. There was still a right way and a wrong way to go about things, and both countries, both nations went about it the brutal, paganistic, heathen, wrong way. And so we're judged for that. James chapter 4, verse 16 says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. I tell that to my kids. If you know what's right, but you choose not to do what's right, you're sinning. And James is clear about that. The Word is clear about that. So Assyria was not judged by the law of Moses. That would not be fair. They didn't have it. They were fairly judged by the law of conscience, which God hardwires into every man. But, now back to Isaiah, in their arrogance, they dismissed any notion of the God of Israel. Any notion of God's indignation in their invasions, and that was their great downfall, discounting the one true God. Watch this, verse 6. I send it, that is Assyria, God says, I send Assyria against a godless nation. That's Israel. And commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says... Are not my princes all kings? Here's the deal. Assyria had its own agenda that was contrary to God's. It was not God's agenda. It was to kill, steal, and destroy. It was satanically driven. It was about power and devastation. And God was saying, I want this to be a punishment. But they would reject the king of kings. Interesting, the kings of Assyria in that day had a title for themselves. They called themselves king of kings. The ruler of Assyria, Sennacherib, at this point, Tiglath, Pileser III, we'll talk about him in a minute, like to call him Tigger. He called himself King of Kings. King of Kings. The pomp, the arrogance of Assyria. Verse 9, Is not Kalno like Carchemish or Hamat like Arpad or Samaria like Damascus? 
And this is the words of the kings of Assyria saying, aren't all these cities alike? What, what he's talking about there in verse 9, five cities are conquered cities. And these five conquered cities are being touted by the Assyrians as a symbol of their power and their manifest destiny. But by including this Assyrian boast, God does something interesting for you and me as Bible students here. He timestamps this prophecy. He makes it very clear exactly when this is being given. Damascus fell in 732 B.C. Samaria fell in 722 B.C. Carchemish fell in 717 B.C. We know this from history. And we know that Isaiah gave this prophecy sometime before the Assyrian king Sennacherib laid siege to Jerusalem in 701 B.C. I know you're tracking all this. It's okay, just listen to this. So we can place the giving of this prophecy sometime after the fall of Carchemish in 717 and sometime before... Sennacherib lays siege to Jerusalem in 701. So we have this 17-year window. We know exactly when this was written. And I believe that was intentional on God's part. Assyria is boasting and God's going, yeah, but I want Bible students to know when this happened, so go ahead and boast all you want. I'll use it for my purposes. The arrogance of Assyria, however, goes far beyond conquered peoples. It goes against their images and idols. In fact, it goes against their gods. Watch this, verse 10. As my hand, this is the Assyrian king speaking, or being quoted as saying, As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? Oops. It just crossed a dangerous line. Isaiah here is revealing the mindset of the king of Assyria. Again, this is Tiglath-Pileser III. Man, we used to make jokes about that. We had a a pastor when I was growing up, Charles Stansel. Charles loved the Lord. He was a consistent man of God, a man of great faith, and had a great impact on me as a kid. But his favorite thing in the world was talking history. And he would get up there and just go off in these directions of history. talking, And he would talk often. I don't know why, but he was fascinated with Tiglath-Pileser III. And we made jokes about Tiglath-Pileser III all the time. And I told my mom when I was just starting into ministry, if I ever preach a sermon about Tiglath-Pileser III, shoot me. So don't tell my mom that we're talking about this guy. Tigger. Tiglath-Pileser III. Isaiah uses some interesting words here to describe the rebellious heart of this king in verses 10 and 11. He says, graven images and idols. So King Tigger comes out and he says, we're going to go take them out because their graven images and their idols are no better than the graven images and the idols of the people we've already conquered. But the words he uses are interesting. Graven images in the Hebrew, Isaiah uses this word, pesalim, which is carved or quarried. So that just indicates stone images. The other word is more interesting for idols. Elelim. Elelim in the Hebrew means non-entity. Something insignificant. Something completely worthless or without value. Elelim. What Isaiah is doing here is revealing that the heart of Tigger is so arrogant that he calls Elohim Elelim. You understand the contrast there? He calls the God of the universe. Remember the Bible says the substance of all things is Christ. He is the only thing that matters, the only one that matters. He has all substance in and of himself. He is the only one of worth. And Tigger calls him insignificant. Elihim. Inconsequential. He figured since all these other pagan nations had fallen before him, before mighty Assyria, that the God of Israel would be no different. Now listen, understand this. He could have known better. He should have known better. The prophecies fulfilled by the Jewish people in the land of Israel were well known. Now sometimes we look back and we forget that. But all that God did in bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the land and, and stomping on Egypt on the way, the old plagues, the Red Sea, all of that stuff, that was known. That wasn't a surprise. 
That was stuff that if any king, any nation, any Gentile had done his homework would know, wow, maybe we shouldn't mess with these people. Look at their history. Look at what God has done in them and through them. He could have known better. But his pomp and his arrogance had him had him seeing far beyond, not going to, not checking with, not even seeking out the Word of God. Now, I keep calling him Tigger. You know, there, there's another Tigger. The wonderful thing about Tiggers is Tiggers are wonderful things, right? Okay, I'm not going to do the whole song for you. Tigger from the Winnie the Pooh series. The guy who plays, who is the voice of Tigger, was Paul Winchell. You all heard of Paul Winchell? He voiced Tigger. He did several other Disney characters. Paul Winchell was not an atheist, but a rejecter of the God of the Bible. He believed there was some kind of a God, but he rejected the Bible, rejected it outright. And what was interesting about I was reading about this last week. In 1982, he published a book called God 2000, Religion Without the Bible. And he went through in this book to try and disprove the Scriptures, to show contradictions and, and problems within the Bible. But listen, I mentioned this Tigger and the other Tigger because they have something in common. Tiglath, Pileser III, and Paul Winchell have something in common. People who deny, who deny the true Word of God, they do so to their own sorrow. You deny the Word of God, you do so to your own sorrow. Paul Winchell died in 2005, estranged from all of his children. His children didn't even know he had died. They had to be told by somebody else that he was even sick. His daughter posted this statement on her website that was entitled on her website, TTFN, which is a famous statement from the character Tigger, Tata for now. She wrote TTFN, and then she wrote, I got a phone call a few minutes ago telling me that my father passed away yesterday. A source close to my dad, or at least closer than I was, decided to tell me himself instead of letting me find out on the news, which I appreciate. Apparently, a decision had been made not to tell me or my father's other children. My father, listen, my father was a very troubled and unhappy man. If there is another place after this one, it is my hope that he now has the peace that so eluded him on earth. What a tragedy. What a, what a horrible thing. You know, my kids laugh at the character Tigger, but the man behind the character was a very sad and troubled man in this life. Why? He rejected the only place he could have gone for hope. And it's the same thing with Tiglath Pileser III. He rejected the Word of God and the truth of God that was available. It was out there. He could have known. He could have looked ahead. He could have gotten himself... I'm just totally you know, surmising here, but he could have gotten himself in league with the Lord and said, we will do your will, Almighty God. We will be the instrument of, of your will and we will do it your way. But his pride and arrogance made him call the one true God... God insignificant. He rejected the word and it would cost Assyria big time. Verse 12. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. This is the one thing the atheist, the agnostic, the critic, the unbeliever misses. Doesn't understand. When Paul Winchell sat down to write his book, and to say in the writing of this book that the Scriptures don't come true, that prophecy is flawed, and that things said here don't happen here, what he missed is very simply what God says here in verse 12, when the Lord has completed all His work. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying God's work will be done when He's finished. God's work will be done when he's finished and not a moment before. And part of the problem that people have with the Scriptures is some of what God says in the Scriptures is not done. It has not yet been completed. But that doesn't mean it won't. It just means it hasn't yet. Just because Assyria was the great world power and and Israel and Judah were, were failing, it didn't mean that the pagan god Assur was God and that Yahweh was not. It meant that God was doing His work. And He was doing His work His way. Are you getting what I'm saying here? Let me put it another way. God's, God is not on man's schedule. God does not do things 
in our time frame. He does not get it done according to our wishes. It's His purposes that He is fully working out. But sometimes His purposes take time. And that means in your life and in mine. Sometimes the purposes of God take decades in a life. Well, we're saying, I want an answer now. He's saying, I'm not done. Hang on. Yeah, but I need to know right now. I'll let you know. Let's keep working this through. And when you find yourself worrying about what God's doing in your life, or bigger, when you're worrying about the direction of our world, of our country, or wondering what God is up to, would you just do this? Remember the promises of prophecy. Go back to prophecy. What do you mean? Isaiah 46, verse 8. Remember this, God says, and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things which have not been done, saying, listen, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And but God, you haven't done it in my life yet. I will. But, but God, I want it. I will. I will accomplish what I said I would accomplish. And Bible prophecy, gang, it stands as a measure of that for you and me. It's not just about opening up the Word and going, oh, this is so cool, look at that. It's about recognizing and realizing the faithfulness of God to carry out His promises which He guarantees to do. Prophecy proves God's faithfulness. Now we've read this before many times. Another passage. I want you to hear it again. Beginning with Israel, Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of His will. Who's us? The Jewish people. According to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, Things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. He's talking about Israel here, and he's saying the whole purpose of this was to glorify God. All the work that He's done and is doing, and continues to do in Israel, is ultimately for His glory. But then Paul says in verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 1, In Him you also, Gentiles, you also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Now, now back to Assyria. That's the point. It wasn't supposed to be about the glory of Assyria. It was for the glory of the Lord, and Assyria obviously completely missed it. And so the Lord is now coming down on Assyria. Part 2, the punishment. The punishment of Assyria. Verse 12. It will be that when the Lord has completed all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem... He will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this. For I have understanding and I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of the people like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. And there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. And he's quoting here the mind of the king of Assyria. And I think if you listen real closely, you could hear the Lord respond to this saying, Oh, really? (laughs) Really? You did all this? Okay. Verse 15. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it. Or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. 
Do you hear the Lord says how ridiculous your claims are to be the champion who has conquered all these nations and all these lands? God says to Assyria, you're like an axe saying, look at the great job I did chopping down that tree. It's foolish. You are nothing but an instrument of my indignation. And this was not accomplished by your power, O king of Assyria. This was accomplished by my power. Your conquering is only because, God says, I let you do it. I gave it to you to do. Now as we said earlier, God works in and through the nations. He always has. And that is so important, gang. Maybe you heard it. Yesterday evening, Michelle Bachman on national TV praised God. And it was awesome. It sent chills up my spine. And I'm not saying vote for her because she stepped out of the contest this morning. But she stood up with her, her people around her and she thanked all, you know, did the thank yous and all that for the Iowa caucuses. And then at the end, the last two or three sentences, she went into this praise of God. It was awesome. It was so impressive. I'm going, is this on Fox News? This is on TV right here. you see this? She's praising the Lord. She's giving Him the glory for any good that comes out of what she was accomplishing or doing. All to the glory of God, she said. And I was just going, wow. That alone was worth her running right there. This morning, she got before the, the reporters and she announced that she was pulling out of the, of the race and she did the same thing. She praised God again. I'm like, yes! Man, I wish more people would drop out, you know? <laughs> really kind of do. You know, praising the Lord. My point is this. Why isn't religious faith and morality at the forefront of political questions? Why hasn't there been a single question in all of the Republican national debates, not a single question about faith, about God, about Christianity, or Mormonism, or why you believe what you believe? We can't get into someone's faith. Why not? Why not? Oh, I could really go off on this. I'm not going to. I just wonder why aren't questions asked about the faith of people who are running for elected office? Why don't we vet that? Who are you going to be praying to when you sit behind and when you sit behind the desk there in the Oval Office? Who are you going to lift up your worship to? The real guy? Will you be praying at all? I'd like to know that as a voter. As an American, I'd like to know where your heart is. And yes, it does and will affect the way I vote. Is the axe going to boast itself over the one who chops with it? The thing that bothers me more than anything else that I hear on talk radio today is when people talk about the, the character and the greatness of America. We are not inherently a great people, gang. The only thing that, that is great about this country is it was founded on godly principles. That's why this country was ever great. Not because we just happen to have it. Verse 16. Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among His stout warriors, and under His glory a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. Now it's, this starts to get kind of exciting, so if you've been napping, come back. Listen to this. Check this out. Kindled like a burning flame. Even that phrase, I love the phrase. In the Hebrew, it's, it's uh, an onomatopoeia. I never knew what that was. We've read and studied about it in like elementary school, but I never got it. An onomatopoeia. It's the use of words that are very descriptive here. And Isaiah, who is a, has a great command of the Hebrew language, uses one right here. Kindled like a burning flame. In the Hebrew, it's Yakad Yakod Kikod. Yakad Yakod Kikod. And what it means is, what we would say if we were translating exactly, His glory will crackle with the crackle of a crackling fire. You know, he's, he's being very kind of descriptive and he's giving the sound of a crackling fire. You cod, you cold, you cold. Like that. So it's like the fire crackling. And it reminds us, Hebrews 12.29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. And the light of Israel will become a fire. And His Holy One, a flame. The light of Israel and His Holy One? His Holy One will be a flame? How did John the Baptist say Jesus was going to baptize? With the Holy Spirit and fire. This is Jesus being talked about. 
The light of Israel is Jesus Christ. Yeshua HaMashiach. He is the Messiah, the light of Israel. He is the Holy One. He will burn. And it says, And it will burn and devour His thorns and His briars in a single day. Well, if this is Jesus, I thought we were talking about Assyria. Dual prophecy. Watch this. He will destroy the glory of His forest and of His fruitful garden, both soul and body, and it will be as when a man wastes away, and the rest of the trees of His forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. And you're thinking, well, wait, but this was a prophecy against Assyria, and suddenly we seem to be shifting, and God will do that in prophecy. He'll be talking about a specific people, but then He will broaden the prophecy to be bigger. And we know that it's bigger because of the way He begins to talk and who He starts to draw in to this whole picture. It's an amazing prophecy. Now, it was fulfilled the first time, the first part of this duality, in Isaiah's day. And it's a great story. We studied it back in 2 Kings 19. Do you recall the story? Sennacherib's Assyrian army had Jerusalem surrounded. They were encamped there. The chief of staff, a loudmouth named Rabshika, he keeps coming up there and he's shouting out stuff against the Jewish people and shouting out to Hezekiah. And they're sending letters and it's all these threats and it's this saber rattling and we're going to take you apart. Psychological warfare. The Assyrians were trying to freak out the residents of Jerusalem and those who were holed up inside the city. But the Lord said through Isaiah to Hezekiah in 2 Kings 19 verse 34, I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Prophecy goes to Isaiah. Isaiah gets it to Hezekiah. Have faith. Hang in there. Don't worry. The next morning, the very next morning, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers lay dead on the battlefield. Wiped out. Judah hadn't even lifted a shield. They just looked over the wall and everyone was dead. And God said He would defend the city, didn't He? And He sent a wasting disease. And in a single day, wiped them out. Why did He do it? Why did He wipe out Assyria? He said, for my own sake. And He said, for the sake of my servant David. Remember that. For the sake of my servant David. I made a promise to David. God says, I will keep my promises. So he wipes out the Assyrian army. But that was just the first part. That was just the first act. That was just a picture or a portent of something bigger to come. And this is a dual prophecy. The saving of Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day is a picture of things to come. Of a single day when he will rout the enemies of Israel from around Jerusalem. And it's a greater day even than that of Hezekiah's. His promise to David was that an heir is going to sit on David's throne. That his throne would be an eternal throne. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Now, again, back to the question. How do we know it's a dual prophecy? Because right now, as I'm looking at it, okay, I I see that light of Israel, Holy One is a flame, and I see how you might connect that to Jesus. But we know Assyria was wiped out, so the prophecy fulfilled. How do you see this as being fulfilled later? Watch closely, part three, the promise of Adonai. The promise of Adonai, verse 20. Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those who are of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, Gadosh Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is, is determined, overflowing with righteousness." Verse 23, a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Now listen to the language. This is incredibly important. First of all, he calls him the Lord God of hosts. So the one behind this and behind what's going to happen, Adonai Yahweh Sabah, the Lord God of hosts. And again, there's an immediate fulfillment. Judah would never again ask Assyria for help because Assyria would be no more. 
But the language in these three verses are far bigger than what happened with Assyria. Note this, verses 20 and 21. Four times in two verses he speaks of the remnant of Israel. Two of those four times, Isaiah uses his firstborn son's name, Shir Yashub, a remnant shall return. Shir Yashub, a remnant shall return. Now Zechariah chapter 13 verse 8 says it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third part will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. Listen, that third part is the remnant of Israel. Not those who were left over after Assyria was wiped out. That was not the remnant. Do you understand that Judah was still there? Now, Israel as a nation had been taken out. Babylon would take Judah into captivity. But the remnant was not really a factor yet. Especially not two-thirds of Israel wiped out and one-third left. This remnant of Israel speaks of a time yet to come. A time yet future. But there's more proof than that. This third part, this remnant, Paul refers to them in Romans 11.26. So now we jettison 700 years to the days of Paul when he says, all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion and he'll remove ungodliness from Jacob. That third part, that remnant of Israel, that's who Paul's talking about when he says all Israel will be saved. It's all Israel who is left at the end of the tribulation. All who survive and come to faith in Jesus. Well, that'll be one-third. And that's the remnant. But there's more. Verse 22 tells us what? They return to who? Look at verse 22. Who do they return to? Verse 21, sorry. To the mighty God. El Gabor. The second and only the, the, the only other time Isaiah uses this name. Remember, he used it in the prophecy of the Son given to us. The wonderful counselor, mighty God, El Gabor. This is the second time he uses it, and the only other time. And the remnant's going to return to El Gabor. Who is El Gabor? Jesus. El Gabor is the Son given to us. And so this remnant, for this prophecy to be completely fulfilled, this remnant of Israel has to return to El Gabor, who is Jesus Christ, the Son given. That did not happen when Assyria was wiped out. It is yet to be completely fulfilled. Verse 23 says something else interesting. Note this. A complete destruction, one that is decreed. That exact phrase is used one other time in Scripture. 200 years after this, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and uses that phrase word for word. A complete destruction, one that is decreed. Let me read it to you, Daniel 9.27. Speaking of Antichrist, Gabriel says, He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until, quote, a a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Gang, the complete destruction being talked about by Isaiah in verse 23 is the same complete destruction that Daniel is told about 200 years later, which would be 100 years after Assyria was wiped out, And that complete destruction speaks of the end of the tribulation. This prophecy was partially fulfilled when Assyria was wiped out, but will be completely fulfilled in the tribulation in times yet to come. And if we travel another 500 years down the line from Daniel, we get to the Apostle Paul who quotes Isaiah 10, 22, and 23. In Romans 9.27, he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved, for the Lord will execute His word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Paul says, the remnant will be saved, not the remnant was saved. So do you see the dual prophecy? It's very clear now that though Assyria was a slight fulfillment, it was but a picture of the greater fulfillment that was yet to come. This just blows my mind. But you have to kind of pause when you're studying to catch some of these things. And why, by the way, will Israel ultimately be saved? Why is it? 
Why are the Jewish people saved? It is not by race. It is by grace. It's because they believe in Jesus. They will finally come to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, no one gets grandfathered in. It doesn't work that way. Well, my parents were good Baptists and their parents before them were good Baptists, so I'm sure I'm saved. doesn't work that way. Well, once a Catholic, always a Catholic. doesn't work that way. Well, my people somewhere back in the early days of the country were good Methodists. Doesn't that count for something? Nope. You know what counts? Your faith in Jesus Christ. Period. doesn't matter what mom or dad believe. It doesn't matter what brothers and sisters believe. Grandma and grandpa, it doesn't matter. Your faith in Jesus Christ is what matters. And it will be the same with Israel. Faith in Jesus Christ will save the remnant. Verse 24. Oh, it gets better. i got more for you. (laughs) Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a very little while, my indignation against you will be spent, and my anger will be directed to their destruction. Now remember in the chapter before, God's hand was stretched out, His hand of anger, and it was still stretched out. And with every one of these four warnings, his hand was still stretched out. And now the Lord's saying, hey, don't worry, it's not going to be forever because I'm going to take my hand off of you and I'm going to drop it on Assyria. So now he is very definitely back talking about Assyria. He says in verse 26, the Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it up the way he did in Egypt. And so it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of fatness. Now, the scourge that Isaiah is predicting here, the scourge that's going to come upon Assyria was Babylon. Now, this is an immediate prophecy. So so the Lord's weaving this stuff. Why does he do it that way? So people of faith would believe. You've got to come out of this with faith and stop and think about it. He wants his word understood. So now he's talking about Assyria again. And Isaiah prophesies that Babylon is going to be a scourge to Syria. Guess what? 100 years later they were. Exactly as Isaiah prophesied they would be. Like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. Well, the rock of Oreb, that's the story, the famous story in Israel of Gideon's army taking out the Midianites. Judges chapter 7, you can read the story. The rock of Oreb was where they killed Oreb, who was one of two leaders of the Midianites. They killed Oreb there, one of their kings. And so he's saying, this is going to be like that slaughter. He he does another comparison that I think is interesting. He compares Assyria's destruction by the Babylonians to the drowning of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. When he says his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it up the way he did in Egypt. Israel, do you remember Egypt? Remember you went running through the Red Sea, scared to death? And the Egyptian army followed you in and I closed in. And that was that. That's what it's going to be like like for Assyria. Babylon is going to flood. They're going to close in on them like the sea. They're going to drown Assyria and completely overwhelm and wipe them out. But this is interesting. It says in that day, verse 27, His burden will be removed from your shoulders and His yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of fatness. That's what the NASB translates. I like the King James translation better because it's more accurate. Fatness is shemen in Hebrew. Shemen. And shemen means oil or anointing. Anointing. This yoke that is sitting on you right now, Israel, this yoke of Assyria, it's going to be broken. But guess what's going to break it? The anointing will. The anointing. We're getting back into another dual prophecy. In the immediate, it speaks of Hezekiah, because Hezekiah was the anointed of Israel. All the kings of Judah, from David forward, anointed kings, right? And Hezekiah is the anointed one, and David being the anointed one, God made promises to David, and and keeps these promises to Hezekiah. And as the anointed king of Judah, when all this goes down, God promises to break the yoke. You're anointing, Hezekiah. The yoke will be broken because of anointing. But if you may have guessed, in the future it speaks of another. Because Shemin is part of the root word for anointing. We have the word Mashiach. The anointed one. 
And the anointed one will come and will completely remove the yoke of oppression from Israel. The yoke that is even on Israel today. Notice in verse 27, it says, So it will be in that day. So, verses uh, 24, 25, 26, he's, he's talking to Israel about the immediate threat. But in verse 27, he starts to go back again to the dual prophecy that we saw, saw beginning in verse 20. How do you know that? Note how verse 20 begins. In that day. There's a specific day being talked about. In that day, the remnant of Israel, those are the house of Jacob who have escaped, will never again rely on the one who struck them. Well, verse 27, it will be in that day. Same phrase. It's easier to see in the Hebrew, but it's the same words in English. In that day, the burden will be removed from you. Isaiah is describing the day the remnant of Israel will be saved by the anointed one, Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the anointed one, Jesus Christ. Verse 27 then is again a return to end times prophecy of the salvation of the remnant of Israel. When the anointed one removes the yoke, not of Assyria, but of Antichrist. Note this. Go back to verse 20. Look. They will never again rely on the one who struck them. Now in the days of Hezekiah, the one who struck them, who they were relying on was Assyria. They had an alliance with Assyria. And Assyria turned on them and struck them. Israel will have an alliance with Antichrist. They're going to think he's the right one. They may even believe to some degree he is Messiah. And they're going to form an alliance with him and believe in him until three and a half years into the tribulation, he shows his true colors. And then they'll realize the mistake they made and never again will they rely on the one who struck them. But wait, there's more. Verse 28, watch this. He has come up against Aiyot. Aiyot, which is actually the same as Ai, just a little two-letter name for a city. city that was... Joshua tried to conquer it the first time, had to go again, ultimately conquer it with God's blessing. But it's the first city, as you come into northern Judah, in Hezekiah's day, it was the first city in the north. Okay, Aiath. He's come against Aiath. He has passed through Megron. At Michmash, he deposited his baggage. They have gone through the pass, saying, Gibah would be our lodging, will be our lodging place. Rama is terrified, and Gibeah of Saul has fled away. Cry aloud with your voice, O daughter of Galim. Pay attention, Laasha, wretched and wretched Anathoth. Madmina has fled. The inhabitants of Gabim have sought refuge. Yet today he will halt at Nob. He shakes his fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Now watch this. Ai, the first city in the north of Judah. 15 miles roughly north of Jerusalem. And from there, from the beginning of verse 28 all the way down through verse 32, this reads like a Google map. City after city after city is going from the north all the way down to Nob, which is the closest city outside of Jerusalem. In fact, from Nob you can see Jerusalem. Did you track this on a map? What are you talking about here? What is being described? The southward march of the Assyrians coming to take Jerusalem. Starting with the first city conquering it, then the next, then the next, then the next, just marching their way down through Judah until they get to Jerusalem and they surround Jerusalem and the Assyrians then are ready to take out Jerusalem. Now hold that thought. Verse 33 says, Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. Those also who are tall in stature will be cut down and those who are lofty will be abased. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Lebanon is not Lebanon there. Lebanon as a great forested country is a picture here of trees being cut down. The trees of the Assyrian army. If you looked at over 185,000 men in a marching army, the description Isaiah is using here is a marching army of trees. And God's going to cut them down. He's just going to... Cut them all down. Historically, Isaiah lays out from Ai or Aiath all the way down to Nob, he lays out the anticipated march on Jerusalem by Assyria. 
And the ultimate destruction of that moving forest of an army. When they get down there, and again we already read, the 185,000 wiped out in a day. 2 Kings 19.35 says, It happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So it's a very, very specific prophecy that's giving town by town by town, all the way to Jerusalem, surrounding it, taking, getting ready to take it out, and suddenly the angel of the Lord kills all these guys. Because of this, most rabbinical scholars, Jewish scholars, think the mighty one there in verse 34 has to be the angel of the Lord in 2 Kings 19.35. Because, of course, he took out the 185,000 Assyrians. By the way, think about this. One angel took out 185,000 Assyrians. And Jesus said, I could call 12 legions if I want. Wow. <laughs> There's some serious power in the angelic realm. We probably shouldn't, uh, shouldn't toy with that. But there's a problem. According to 2 Kings 18 and 19, Sennacherib didn't take this route. He didn't start in the north and work his way down to Jerusalem. He didn't start at Ai and end up at Nob. As a matter of fact, in 2 Kings 18 and 19, when this prophecy of the Assyrian attack and the destruction of Assyria, so-called or so thought, when this prophecy is laid out, something's wrong here. Sennacherib was south of Jerusalem in the city of Lachish, And he's hurling insults from there and he's sending his guys up from there. He sends his army. He went down around and came up to Lachish and was kind of sequestered there, sent his army on ahead, coming up from the south to Jerusalem. Prophecy's wrong. (laughs) Did Isaiah just miss something? Well, maybe that was the intended march, right? Do you know where I'm going with this? It's a dual prophecy gang. And what I believe we have laid out before us right here is... The invader from the north is not Assyria, it's Antichrist. That this is Antichrist and his army coming in from the north and making their way down to Jerusalem. And what Isaiah lays out for us is the exact battle plan of Antichrist's invasion of Jerusalem and Armageddon. Now, when I ran across that, I'm going back and forth, I'm looking at Second Kings and going, but that's not the way they went. And then you start to realize, but all of this... This remnant of Israel that's saved. The flame that is Jesus. The judgment. By the way, that makes the mighty one at the end of verse 34, Jesus Christ. He is the mighty one who will lop off the trees, who will wipe out the armies, the nations who are gathered there for battle against Jerusalem. Jesus is the mighty one. Wow! Is that amazing to you too? Do you realize that in those few verses we just read Antichrist's battle plan and God knew it ahead of time by at least 2,700 years, give or take, depending on when He comes and all this happens? We have just read Antichrist's plan to attack Jerusalem in the book of Isaiah written 700 years before the birth of Christ. I mean, that just... Wow! Now, I'm almost done. But I want to go back to the original question I asked when we began. Why is this here? I mean, it's cool. It is really cool to read this stuff and go, Oh, boy! How cool is that? How amazing! Look at how it all works out. But if all we get out of this is a couple of minutes of ear tickling, kind of a thrill, then we're missing the point. Why is this here? Why put this in His Word 2,700 years before present day? Well, perhaps one reason is for the remnant in that day. Maybe for those who were alive at the time. For the remnant. For the tribulation saints. Who I almost guarantee you will be following these things scripturally. As they're taking place all around and wait, okay, what's what's next? We'll turn to chapter ten. Okay, I'm there. What's going to happen next? You know, checking it out. Perhaps that's why God put it in here. But there's one more reason that I think such prophecies are included, and I want you to turn over to Isaiah 46 and look at this with your own eyes. We read this verse earlier. 
Isaiah 46, verse 8. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So why is the march of Antichrist spoken of by Isaiah? What does that have to do with it? Listen, every single prophecy in Scripture fulfilled or yet to be fulfilled is here to provide a firm footing. A sure foundation. Look at verse 8. Remember this and be assured. The word assured in the Hebrew there is firm. It also is the same word used for a foundation. Our foundation happens to be Jesus. Remember this and be firm. Be assured. Be strengthened in your faith. Well, how does this work, Rick? Well, it works because we saw Isaiah prophesy these things about Assyria. We saw it happen. We know historically what took place within a hundred years. Isaiah said it's going to happen. It happened. But it's going to happen in larger measure in days to come. Well, I'm just not sure. Be sure. Be firm in your faith. Why? Because God has shown Himself faithful time and time again. The foundation of our faith, Jesus Christ, is the Mighty One. And through Jesus, God will get the job done. And that means in your life as well as mine. And in this church, and in this world, God will get the job done. And Father, may we never forget that if you have the intimate details of a battle plan yet to come, you have that written in your Word, then Lord, you know the intimate details of each one of our lives. You know what causes need to be taken up. You know how to rescue your people from hard times and tribulation. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to rest firm and secure in that. Help us to stand on the truth of your word. May we not waffle. May we not doubt. But as prophecy is opened up before us time and time again, may our faith be strengthened in our sure foundation, Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.